0: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.
1: On Tuesday night in Cleveland, the candidates came on stage from opposite sides. There was no handshake. Everyone there was tested for COVID-19. It was the first TV debate held in a pandemic. But when the subject came up, it triggered another angry argument – over alternative realities. Joe Biden called President Trump irresponsible. You could never have done the job we've done, Trump replied. You don't have it in your blood. He needled Biden for wearing the biggest mask I've ever seen. Biden wasn't wearing a mask during the debate, of course. Neither were members of the Trump family and senior staff in attendance. With 31 days to go, this is Checks and Balance. I'm John Prado, The Economist's US editor, and this is a podcast about the 2020 elections. Each week, we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today, how did reality itself become an election issue? The president's tweet announcing his positive coronavirus test was his most shared ever, a hard, shocking fact amid a mire of misinformation. Tuesday night's excruciating shouting match between Donald Trump and Joe Biden highlighted how even the truth has become a partisan issue. American voters face a fib infestation. Can reality be reclaimed? In this episode, we'll look back on the debate, hear how the dispute between the two candidates is echoed in small town Iowa, and hear from Sinan Aral, an MIT professor who's figured out why the way we communicate online rewards dishonesty. With me as ever to discuss all of this are Charlotte Howard, The Economist's New York Bureau Chief, and John Fassman, the Washington correspondent. John, you're in Maine doing some reporting at the moment, how's that been?
2: It is wonderful. I'm staying basically in the Maine summer vacation home of my dreams. It's a small plywood cabin near a lake. However, a summer vacation dream home in October in Maine is really extraordinarily cold. But I have a few mice to keep me company and, uh, and it's lovely. Charlotte, how about you?
3: I'm doing well. It's been a funny week other than feeling like my brain was put in a juice press from the debate. um doing fine
1: I'm pleased to hear it. So quick thoughts from both of you before we get into this podcast. By now, the whole world knows that Donald Trump and Melania Trump have tested positive for covid nineteen. We can't know how this plays out, right? He may be just fine. He may bounce back after a few days quarantining. He may get sick. What are your sort of speculations on how this might or might not affect the race?
3: It's funny, Boris Johnson, I was reminded by a friend and loyal Checks and Balance listener that Boris Johnson's approval ratings jumped when he was sick with COVID earlier this year. I wonder with Trump whether that will be replicated. I think it's less likely, in part because it's been a while since COVID first appeared. So we sort of know how it is that people contract covid And it's not that surprising, actually, that Donald Trump got sick given the way that he's been campaigning. So I think it's a bit different from the Johnson illness, and the effect in the polls may be different too.
2: That's true. Obviously, we wish him well. If he does recover quickly, I can see him saying, you know, you see, it's just like the flu, and I beat it and getting a little bump. I think if he turns sick, then there are questions about who else may be sick in his inner circle. There are reports that he spent a lot of time prepping for debate in very tight quarters with his aides unmasked this could affect how the white house runs so it's early it's too soon to say but obviously we hope the disease is is mild for both him and mrs trump
1: obviously this is the biggest news right now given the proximity of the election but we don't know what's going to happen one thing we can talk about with more certainty is tuesday night's debate that we all stayed up for Back in October 1960, The Economist reported on the first ever televised presidential debate. Our verdict then was that calm, moderate statement and gentlemanly discord had prevailed between Richard Nixon and John F. Kennedy. Quite a contrast to this week. The consensus seems to be that it was the worst debate ever. It was bad enough watching it in English. This is what it sounded like in Japanese as the three simultaneous translators on national broadcaster NHK tried to keep up
0: was the most
2: <laughs> oh man oh good lord that was so uh, painful
3: i don't know why you would put any human being through that
2: oh uh, i think i preferred it in japanese i'm 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 blushing in sympathy with the people who had to who had to translate that simultaneously goodness
1: <laughs> well let's talk about this debate this is a very cable news sort of question i'll put it to you john Pasman, first what were the highlights of the
2: debate for you Oh, gosh, I don't think there were any. The highlight was the when it stopped. It uh, obviously, President Trump comported himself in a way that I've never seen any candidate comport himself in a debate. I would say that Vice President Biden tried to hold on to some sense of normalcy, although he did call the sitting president of the United States a clown and tell him to shut up, which I thought was a low light in his own right. But really, it was just it was just it was just a 90 minute long wallow in the mud
1: Charlotte, the thing that grabbed the headlines from this debate was Donald Trump's refusal to condemn white supremacists in clear terms. But that didn't shock me quite so much as the end of the debate, when Chris Wallace, the moderator for Fox News, who I thought actually did a pretty decent job in the circumstances, I think he had a close to impossible job, Wallace asked both candidates whether they'd accept the result if they lost. And Donald Trump basically said no, in many more words than that.
3: That was an extremely striking moment. I think in past debates, when you think about the debates that we've had, even in the past decade, uh, or since 2000, you think about some of the ideological differences between presidential candidates between Obama and Mitt Romney and Obama and McCain, George W. and John Kerry, those were really matters of policy. And particularly among that group, also, there was an understanding that there was a certain degree of character, the debates were not about tearing down the other person's character, or or questioning anything having to do with the structure of American institutions. And this debate was just so striking and not being about ideology, and then putting a huge, huge question mark over the basic structure of American democracy itself. And so I think it's worth noting just what a historic departure that is.
2: The other striking thing was the extent to which the two candidates appeared to be inhabiting different realities, right? When Chris Wallace asked Donald Trump to condemn white supremacists, which is really one of the easiest things a politician can ever do, you know, it's not hard to say Nazis are bad. Donald Trump immediately pivoted to talking about Antifa, which he saw as the greater threat, or his insistence that he was, in fact, going to protect pre-existing conditions when he he doesn't really have a health care plan. In that sense, the two candidates were just, there was no shared reality they inhabited at those moments. That's really worrying. Okay, thanks
1: both. We'll be talking about that tear in the fabric of reality in American politics a good deal in this podcast. And in a moment, we'll look at how it's reflected among voters in Iowa. First, though, a reminder, if you're not an Economist subscriber, you're missing out. Signing up's really simple. You'll get the best offer by heading to economist.com slash 2020 election pod. If you are a subscriber, however, and sometimes listeners and friends who listen to the podcast who are subscribers, tell me off my hectoring tone at this point in the podcast. I want to thank you for supporting our journalism and all the correspondents we have all over the world who bring you your coverage weekly in The Economist uh, and daily on our apps. You'll be able to read this week's cover piece on Joe Biden's relationship with business, Lexington's verdict on the debate, plus a brilliant column on culture wars in the UK. That link for a special rate is economist.com slash 2020 election pod. You'll find it in the notes for this episode on your podcast app. The debates made clear just how little the two presidential candidates can agree on. This split reality will be familiar to students of the media, people working on Capitol Hill. But what about the rest of America? Adam Roberts is The Economist's Midwest correspondent. He's been in Iowa to find
4: out. On the main street of Wokon two in the afternoon on a Friday, there's um, quite a few boarded up shops and bit of a rundown feel to the town, but today is the day of the homecoming parade. I was in
5: northern Iowa, near the banks of the upper Mississippi, looking for counties where political loyalties have swung wildly in recent years.
4: Here comes the marching band now. Oh, okay, goodness sakes.
6: To me, when I look at a Trump sign in somebody's yard, my thoughts are, I'm a fool, I'm uninformed, I'm a racist, I'm a misogynist.
5: Karen Pratt is the Democratic chair of Alamakee County.
4: And if you'd seen a Reagan sign in the 80s, would you have responded as strongly or a, a Bush Viscerally? Sign?
6: Yeah. Oh, no, no. It would be more of a... You could still talk
5: about facts. Woke on that afternoon offered up an idyllic, all-American scene. The early autumn sun lit stars and stripes that hung from the street lamps. After tractors and fire engines passed, the homecoming queen, in a tiara, waved to us from the back of a pickup. It was a moment of genial, small-town unity. But Karen was upset.
6: What's so disconcerting for me is that uh, it seems when Barack Obama ran, uh, it was so much more positive and there wasn't so much disinformation. And now it seems most people are getting their, of uh, the Republicans, are getting their news from Fox News. And then there's so much disinformation on the internet as well.
5: She was referring to a split reality, one that feeds unprecedented division in small towns like Wocom all across the state and beyond. Locals might still talk of Midwestern nice, the idea of being civil, respectful, and welcoming. But in this election season, that's fading fast.
6: The level of anger is unbelievable. We've had so many of our yard signs stolen. Oh, you wouldn't believe it. Mm
5: -hmm. In the town of Cresco, in nearby Howard County, I met a pair of middle-aged activists putting up enormous blue barn signs of their own. The white lettering announced Trump, Pence, make America great again. We were on the grassy roadside as the men hammered metal stakes into the ground. Their mood was brighter.
7: So a battle of the yard signs. Yeah, well that's traditional. Yeah, no, it's always kind of fun. But, uh, so anyway, uh, I think enthusiasm as far as people willing to put a sign, you know, some people say, oh, they're embarrassed by the president and, and, and things like that. Yeah. And if you're willing to put their, their name out on your lawn or yeah. corner of your field, I think that yeah. shows that there are a lot of people that are right. very proud to support him.
5: So Neil Schaefer is county chair of the Republicans. Yeah, his friend John Galing volunteers. Trump's it's his job to deliver the yard signs, flags and banners. Yep. They say there is no enthusiasm here for Joe Biden and claim the media is turning people against the president.
7: Well, there's also voter hatred, right? Yeah. So there are people there, they could care less about Sleepy Joe and his dementia. They just hate Trump so much. They
5: say Trump hatred has got out of hand. They've had their signs spray-painted and defaced.
7: It's very difficult to believe anything. I've I've come to not expect to hear anything other than Uh, political commentary on the evening news. Mm. So I just don't watch that. I read, I do a lot of reading. That's mostly where I get my news. But people now expect it just to be mudslinging. They told me the
5: media reflects a more troubling tendency on the left.
7: A lot of the people on the left are very close-minded, and this is how you will think, and this is how, if you say this or do this, you're um, going to be branded uh, branded, a... And honestly, bullied.
4: I'm on the main street in Decorah, which is a community college town with interesting restaurants, cultural, social life in northern Iowa, good for tourism and for recreation. Uh, it's an unusual part of Iowa because of the high level of education of people here, so quite liberal, quite pro-democrat. a shop here called Agora Arts and there's a big poster in the window it's the sort of design that you might associate with Joe Biden's campaign and it has four words on it compassion equality science truth 2020 biggest word of the lot the biggest letters uh, are the letters of science doesn't say Joe Biden anywhere but it seems to suggest that one side of this election is all about facts and science and perhaps the other side isn't so i'm going to go in and see if anyone will talk to me about this
5: just put it up yeah
3: oh you put it up i did i just put it up today oh great because tomorrow the republican party is hosting a parade and it's a constitution day parade um, but a lot of things that have happened in this area in the last four years have gotten extremely polarised.
5: Gail Magnuson owns the gallery, which sells quirky pieces of local art, jewellery and kitchen gear. An she says COVID-19 article. has only exacerbated political divisions in Decorah.
3: I think almost everything that the Trump administration is doing right now is anti-science. Mm. I just am so a believer in, you know, what what science says, and it says that the face masks are going to help, and so you wear one, right? It's just a no-brainer to me.
5: The environment for campaigning is increasingly toxic. One candidate in Howard County told me how a gunman had driven to her rural home and shot up yard signs in front of it. A party activist says his dog was poisoned. One party organiser told me she's been screamed and sworn at while handing out Biden signs. She's also reported to the police one abusive, violent threat that she received online. Okay, we that.
8: are standing in the Republican headquarters on yeah. downtown Decorah, Iowa. Yeah. And it is filled with memorabilia and information regarding the Republican candidates.
4: And, and, there's
8: and the spot. elephant is the mascot of the Republican Party.
4: And I'd say he's... Probably almost as tall as as the two of us. Probably. Julie
5: Oskelson, a candidate for district supervisor, is another person who blames the nasty political environment on changes in the media.
8: Well, And it doesn't matter what media it is, there's much more bias than when I grew up. When I grew up, I was during the time of Walter Cronkite, Harry Reasoner, where they did not insert bias. And so even when people say, well, I believe in science... And there are signs around our community that say, you know, we believe in science. Well, who doesn't believe in science? Everyone believes in science. And what people are doing, they're going to choose a scientific study that meets their criteria to to persuade somebody. So it's not that nobody believes in science, we all believe in science. It's how you want to use the scientific studies to defend your position. And I think that happens with everything in politics.
5: Overall, these places in northern Iowa offered a bleak picture of small-town division.
8: I think it's unfortunate and it's like, how did we get to this point that is so rival and people are so hypersensitive for the other, the opposing view and so how do you come together at this point? And yeah, I do, I do think it does. And when we see the unrest in our country, that's very upsetting.
5: People do talk of somehow getting back to civility like Karen Pratt at the parade, Julie told me the rift needs to heal. John and Neil, the Cresco Republicans, offered a glimmer of hope. John recalled how his family prayed for reconciliation the night Obama was elected. They say their families and congregations will continue to pray for the president, whoever it is.
7: We always pray for the president and we always have. Because we're all it, yeah. That's right. um, So, yeah, if Biden wins. I'm not going to be crying and screaming and running through the streets and breaking windows. Um, I mean, I think that's the reason why we're conservative. We're uh, We're not into that.
1: So, John, you heard from Adams reporting there in Iowa that the complaint on the liberal side frequently is that conservatives have a worldview that's based on bad information, essentially. And on the conservative side, the retort is that the media is biased against them, and so they have to seek out you know, their own sort of sources of truth. Does that echo what you found in your reporting as well?
2: Yeah, for the most part. And I don't think the accusations of liberal media bias are entirely unfounded. I think there is a sort of broad sympathy to the left that has become especially pronounced in the last four years. I think the problem is that when searching for their own sources of truth also becomes searching for their own sources of fact. And so you can see that in the way that conspiracies like QAnon have spread, which are just utterly without basis. And that when it encounters an unpleasant fact, like most conspiracies, the responses say, well, that just shows how deep the conspiracy is. I think that is what is really disturbing. It's always been the case that, you know, liberals read the New York Times and conservatives read the Wall Street Journal But those sources disagree about what to do about the reality that we live in. They don't disagree about the reality that we live in. That's what I think is new and and alarming.
3: That's a great point. The other thing I would point out, and it's hardly a novel one, is that the head of the Republican Party, President Trump, has an extraordinarily bizarre relationship with fact. And that was on display during the debate. And when I think about it, it kind of reminds me of Donald Rumsfeld's categorizations of known unknowns and unknown unknowns. You know, with Trump you can kind of break it down into a few different categories. There are the unfounded facts that the real problem with climate change is forest management for instance or that voter fraud is rampant. Then there are instances in which he conceals the truth, so sort of a a hidden fact and we know what some of those are, so we don't know what his true tax returns are. That was a huge story this week. we He's not releasing his tax returns. And in his answer to Chris Wallace, he was evasive. But I think the most fascinating category are the the things that he says that are just pure fabrications that can immediately be fact-checked. I mean, they can immediately be proven wrong in a matter of seconds. And that was from the inauguration crowd claim that his inauguration crowd was the biggest you know, that can instantly be fact checked that Biden wants to do away with private health care that can instantly be fact checked as being false, or that under him, the economy has done better than under any prior president, which is patently false. And so, you know, in the past, you had Nixon lying about Watergate, Um, JFK concealed a real health condition. There have been all sorts of presidents. Clinton, of course, lied about his affair with Monica Lewinsky. But under President Trump, it's a different kind of relationship with truth that's just unlike what we've seen before.
1: Yeah, Charlotte, to that point, Bob Woodward, who's probably spent more time interviewing Donald Trump than any other journalist recently, was quoted the other day saying, I don't know, to be honest, whether he's got it straight in his head what's real and what's unreal. And that's certainly the impression one got from watching this debate. John Fazman, I was struck by another thing in Adam's reporting from Iowa, which is this nostalgia for a bygone era, you know, the Cronkite era in American news, where there was one source or a couple of sources, and everybody watched the same source and you could trust what was said. And yet at the same time as that nostalgia exists, and I've heard it out reporting, I'm sure you have as well, people's behavior is the precise opposite of that. And all the incentives in media and on social media point in other directions. So on the one hand, you have this apparent yearning for this bygone era. On the other hand, you, you know, you look at revealed preferences, how people actually behave, and, and it's the opposite. They run off to find news sources that confirm their set of biases rather than look to things that might challenge them.
3: Yeah, I mean, obviously, this problem is not completely new. When I had Adam's job in the Midwest, I'd always listen to Rush Limbaugh in the car. And that was in 2008. And it was a completely different news cycle on Rush than you would hear on NPR. So it's not like it's totally new. But what has been new, really is the way it in particular, how social media helps to perpetuate not just a different point of view, but actively fake news. And so I was looking up Some of the data from a paper that came out in 2018 by some political scientists, Andrew Guess, Brendan Nyan, and Jason Reifler. And in the lead up to the 2016 election, about one in four Americans of voting age visited a fake news website, and Trump supporters accounted for by far the most traffic, though there were a few pro Clinton fake news sites. And what was kind of interesting is that there was a smaller subset of Americans that really accounted for this uber consumption of fake news. So about 10% of Americans with the most conservative media consumptions accounted for 60% of visits to fake news sites, um, with Facebook being the key way that they were exposed to that fake news. But in the final weeks before the election, you know, a broader swath of people were, were getting fake news. So I think that What's really changed um, in the 2016 election compared with the different media bubbles, which have been there for a while, you know, because of Fox News and because of conservative talk radio, is social media and the proliferation of fake news.
1: Okay, thank you both. We'll be back in a bit to talk a little more about social media and about how the way news spreads online rewards dishonesty.
0: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.
1: As we heard from Adam's reporting in Iowa, people seem to instinctively understand how social media has helped spawn competing realities and enhance polarization. Sinan Aral is a professor at MIT. His new book, The Hype Machine, explains why this is and how we might get out of this mess.
9: Social media runs on an intention and an engagement economy, and the business models hype us up. And so the algorithms favor that which is salacious, surprising, uh, blood-boiling, and frequently untrue. And so this kind of material spreads farther, faster, deeper, and more broadly than the truth, and much more broadly and quickly than the debunking information can catch up to it.
1: One of the things you propose in the book is that news on social media ought to be labeled for the benefit of, of consumers. Is that something that's sort of technologically possible or is there just too much to label? Because that, that, to me at least, suggests quite a big role for, for humans
9: in, in all of this and humans cost money, etc. So just to set your mind or frame the thinking around labeling, When you go to the grocery store to buy food to consume, it's extensively labeled by law. You know how many calories it has, how many trans fats, whether it was produced in a facility that produces wheat and peanuts if you have an allergy. But when you consume news, you don't have anywhere near the same amount of information about that news that you're consuming uh, on social media. Research has shown that nudges for consumers to be reflective are effective at uh, reducing the belief in false news and reducing the sharing of false news. Imagine a system that every once in a while asks a consumer, is this headline accurate? Yes or no? That would not only serve to nudge, and it's been shown that it is an effective nudge towards reflectivity for that consumer, that they become more discerning when they have to answer that question periodically. And so it reduces the belief and spread of false news. But at the same time, you're collecting crowdsourced labels about falsity and truth on all of those news articles that you're showing to billions of people. And that crowdsourcing could then be combined with machine learning And, for instance, the 35,000 employees that Facebook has recently hired to sort of go through this stuff. So you need the algorithms, the machine learning, combined with a human-in-the-loop employee core, like the 35,000 people hired at Facebook, plus the crowd, the billions of people online that are going to crowdsource labels that can then be put on information to give it more provenance as we consume it online.
1: So in that situation, you'd have a large number of users of social media being the first people who flag things up, you know, employees of the social media firms, tens of thousands of them who would then be tasked with looking at posts. But there's so much stuff out there. Are there things that you can do with AI, with other technologies that can help here
9: too? My former student, Sarush Vasugi, who's the lead author of our 10-year study of fake news on Twitter and is now a professor of computer science at Dartmouth, while he was a PhD student at MIT, he created a false news rumor detector, which was highly accurate. And the interesting thing about these types of algorithms is that they don't have to be based solely on the true or false Content inside a news story, but it turns out that the characteristics of the spreaders, as well as the characteristics of how rumors spread, are really good indicators of whether something is true or false. False things spread differently than true things, they also are spread by different types of people. The characteristics of a false narrative from who spreads them to how it spreads to also what's contained in the narrative are all very good indicators and predictors of falsity.
1: So interesting that truth and falsehood have different ways of spreading. How do you spread truth? Because I feel like that's something we could do with a little bit of advice on at the moment.
9: The things that are favored in the current iterations of the algorithms are novelty So when you read the cognitive science literature, you realize that human attention is drawn to novelty. When you read the sociology literature, you realize that we gain in status when we share novel information. This is our novelty hypothesis from the science paper. Uh, And so truth has a disadvantage. It's almost fighting with one arm tied behind its back. Falsity can be more novel because it's made up. It has an infinite space from which to draw novelty because it's not constrained by reality. But to make truth spread more virally, you have to make it more engaging and interesting and unexpected. And sometimes that's just difficult for the truth Because it's constrained by a reality. That's why uh, I recommend, for instance, everything from labeling of false news, but also demonetizing falsity, making it so you can't run ads against false content, reducing the number of reshares of information in general, like WhatsApp did from five to one to reduce the spread of COVID misinformation, demoting false content in search results, all of this slowing down of information will allow truth to catch up to falsity, even though it's got one hand tied behind its back.
1: Charlotte, this is a discussion that can sometimes feel a bit abstract. So I pulled off a list of the stories that had got the most engagement on Facebook. That means the readers had spent time on them on Facebook, the most engaged stories in the 24 hours after the presidential debate. And I've got the top eight here. I won't read all the headlines to you, but I'll just give you a smattering. The top one was Trump Gets Third 2020 Nobel Prize Nomination. Another one was Chris Wallace Faces Intense Backlash, Including From Colleagues Over Bias During the Debate. Another one was, Trump camp seeks extra debate rule, third party inspectors to look for electronic device in candidates ear. So we may have seen the debate one way, if you were to judge by what spread fast on Facebook, um, you would get a very different impression of what happened on Tuesday night.
3: Yeah, I mean, those headlines just make me want to go back to bed and hide under the covers. But you know, it's funny working for a news organization such as ours, that prides itself on, on on trying to be dispassionate and fact-based, more Americans get their news from social media than they do print newspapers, 20% to 16%. That's a pretty big gap and a big shift from how it used to be. I think that those headlines that you just read, a really good indication of why it is that it's so hard to have any kind of semblance of civility in discussing the issues, the really serious issues, that America needs to grapple with.
2: I wonder whether the fake news problem we're seeing now is not a problem inherent to a sort of new technology to transmit information. If you remember, there's a there's a famous story about Orson Welles' War of the Worlds play being broadcast on the radio. It's about an alien invasion and causing a huge panic because people thought that they were being invaded by aliens. I would be willing to bet that a lot of those people who panicked were older people who were used to getting their information in a different way and just didn't sort of have the cognitive defenses to process against falsity on the radio. In the same way that a lot of the people who are sharing false information, who are most affected by false information on the internet are older Americans who are more used to the age in which if something came out on the newspaper or on the radio or on TV, you could accept it as basically true. And I wonder whether fake news problem will not start to wane as digital natives start to age and are sort of more familiar with the ways you get information, what seems true or false, how to fact check it, how to sort of process information online.
1: I really hope that's true. I like that optimistic perspective, John. I mean, the thing that strikes me at the moment is that if you, without sounding too nostalgic and Cronkite-like, if you rewind to before social media played such a dominant role in political discourse, if you were somebody who wasn't very curious about politics, you just didn't get much information, right? You had to get information about politics by tuning into the radio, you know, watching... TV news, or reading a newspaper, reading a weekly news magazine was obviously the best way of all to do it. Um, but now, if you're somebody who's not curious about the news, you, you get a whole load of information. You just get a lot of bad information coming at you. And because it comes through your social feeds and is recommended by friends, you don't even realise that it's bad information. And then actually being you know, ill-informed is considerably worse for politics than not being informed at all.
2: You're absolutely right. If you're not interested in politics, but you're on Facebook, someone you know almost certainly is. And that person will post information. You'll see it in your feed. You won't know if it's true or false. And especially if you're not sort of a discerning news consumer, that's one way it seems to me that false information could easily spread. Another thing to bear in mind is that there's just more information out there. An ex-CIA analyst called Martin Guri, who wrote a book called Revolt of the Public, made the point that in 2001, for the first time, the volume of information created in one year doubled all of the information created since cave paintings, and it has grown exponentially ever since. And since 2001, a lot of the sort of world news has been bad, right? You had Iraq, you had the financial crisis, and you now have COVID. And it seems to me that that information overload plus a sense that the systems that we have in place are not combating the crises that we face. It's a petri dish for bad information to spread.
3: It's a bit funny because during this program, we have been talking about the different realities that various Americans occupy, that that people just have a totally divorced sense of what's true. But I think one thing that's been strange and disheartening about the election is that in each of those shared realities, a driving force is terror, essentially, you know, on the right, you have this fear that cities are descending into chaos, that immigrants are going to take over America, that the suburbs are going to disappear. And on the left, you have a real fear that civil liberties are going to vanish, that you're going to have an American which corruption thrives, and America's standing continues to be degraded, and that democracy itself is at risk. So I think that it is just true that fear is a force that's driving both sides to the polls this time around. But it's not like it's impossible that a sense of civility can return to American society and that you could have a less fractious country. I mean, I think that that's the hope. And you do see social media platforms to that end trying to become more disciplined about preventing misinformation from spreading. So I was struck that Facebook said that it wouldn't allow any ads that try to delegitimize the outcome of the election. I think that's a promising step. And the more that platforms become engaged in um, trying to limit the misinformation around the election specifically, I think, the better.
1: Well, at the risk of spreading more misinformation, I have a quiz for you, John and Charlotte, The Economist was, of course, watching the first ever TV debate in 1960. Our correspondent noted that it left the contest, quote, as fascinatingly uncertain as before. It's kind of incisive political punditry we we were into at the time. By the time (laughs) the election came around, we concluded that agreeing to the debates was Richard Nixon's biggest mistake because they gave the relatively unknown John F. Kennedy the chance to shine. According to The Economist, Kennedy's only real gaffe was on foreign policy, where he said the islands of Kimoi and Matsu were, quote, indefensible. Nixon said they were in, quote, an area of freedom that America was bound to defend. Where were
2: Kimoi and Matsu?
3: Somewhere in the South Pacific, but I don't know.
2: Yeah, that's my guess around Guadalcanal or Samoa or somewhere like that. They were in the East China Sea, just off the coast of Fujian province. Controlled by Taiwan,
1: the islands were heavily bombed by communist China in 1958. Kimoi is better known these days as Kinmen. If you're planning to visit once tourism resumes, you'll no doubt bring home a locally crafted cleaver. What are Kinmen knives made from? Bone?
3: This is a question for Phasmon. Some kind of shell?
1: Charlotte, you get a point for that. They are made from recycled artillery shells.
2: (laughs) Yes. That is
3: exactly what I meant.
9: Yes. There
1: you go. You're a clear winner in this quiz. Apparently, one shell will yield 60 knives. That's awesome. That's great. I need one of those. Okay, thank you, Charlotte. Thank you, John. Thank you. Thanks, John. Charlotte, you have a public service announcement before we go.
3: Yeah. Um, sure, I'll just say we are recruiting two fellows to write for our United States section for six months from January to June, and we're accepting applications until the end of this month. So if you would like to apply, please submit your resume and one 600-word article about the United States, anything you'd like, but suitable for print in our U.S. section, to American Fellowship at economist.com. We'll put a link in the show notes.
1: That's all from us. If you like the podcast, please tell people and leave us a rating and a review. If you want to get in touch, you can email us at radio at Last week, a particularly sharp listener spotted that we inadvertently promoted Senator Diane Feinstein to chair of the Senate Judiciary Committee. She is, of course, the Democrats' ranking member on that committee. Thanks very much for listening. We'll have more checks and balance next week.